Welcome to Our Hen House. This is Jasmine Singer. And this is Marianne Sullivan. And this week, Marianne will be speaking with Luis Hoyos, renowned photographer and filmmaker behind The Cove, The Game Changers, Racing Extinction, and more. So not that, you know, not 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 that fancy of a guy. Not too too many credits under his belt. Unbelievable. Unbelievable the impact he has had. And really nice guy. I think when I interviewed him, he had just gotten off a very long plane when he was completely jet lagged. But we had a long engaged, fascinating conversation. He's so talented. Did you know, I I did not know this, but The Cove was the first movie he ever made. It won the Academy Award for Best Documentary. The first movie he ever made. He was a photographer. It's not like he was completely unfamiliar with film, but like being a photographer and being a filmmaker are very different enterprises. Yeah. And, you know, the Cove kind of said that, like, he tells such a good story. He's such a great storyteller. It's not just a documentary. Like this is, this is what happened to other people. He inserts himself in them. It's very exciting. It's almost like a mystery story. I love this conversation. Very exciting. I can't wait to hear it. Very cool. And there's some other stuff going on that we wanted to mention. I know that we have Peter Singer coming onto the podcast very soon. Next week, I believe, right? Next week? That is the plan. Yeah. It's kind of a uh, last minute. Yeah. We're, we're putting it together at the last minute because it's so important. I, you know, people probably have been running into hearing about Peter Singer in other places as well because they're doing an enormous push on this new version of Animal Liberation. I think it's called Animal Liberation now. And, and you know, it's, it's a very big deal. That book had an enormous effect on me. It had an enormous effect on a lot of people and it desperately needed updating and because things have changed and he knew that. And so he's really, really updated it. Things have changed both on what's happening to animals, a lot of which sadly is even worse than what was happening then, but also crucially on how much we know about animals. And I think he's really updated it on that as well. I'm, I'm super excited to talk to him about it. I, I really want to hear what, you know, what kind of reactions he's getting, what kind of reactions he expects to get. And they did ask us because, uh, He's doing this tour, this speaking tour, and uh, it's it, it will have already started by the time that that interview airs, which is next week. But there 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 will be uh, a couple of um, a couple of speaking engagements before then, and I just wanted to go through all of them in case you're in any of these cities. I imagine a lot of people would want to uh, get some tickets. Uh, the first one is on Friday, May 26th at the Lisner Auditorium at GW University in Washington, D.C. The second is on the 29th uh, of May at the Wiltern in Los Angeles on the May 30th, the Curran in San Francisco on June 1st, Cooper Union in New York and June 4th, Hackney Empire in London. So he'll be getting around. You can go to Think Inc. That's one word, thinkinc.org.au for more information on how to get to those. This is this is really big news. Uh, yeah. This is going to get a lot of attention. Go see my dad talk. He's not my dad. I just thought I would pretend he was for a second. No, no relation, but I agree. Well, that you know of, that you know of. <laughs> We probably are related, you know, the Jews in the shtetl. We were a little, you know, intense. Sing it away, just sing it away. (laughs) We have some big news in the world of animal rights this week. Why don't you do the honors, Professor? I, yes, enormous news. Most of you have probably heard the Supreme Court finally decided uh, national pork producers 
counsel versus Ross, Ross being the attorney general of California, as to the whether they were going to uphold or get rid of Prop 12, which, you know, made these conditions for selling pork and, and other, uh, other animal foods too, but this case just involved pork in um, California. And I would say the animal law movement, the animal rights movement has really been on tenterhooks. It took them forever to come out with this decision. Of course, you know, they're kind of pretty dysfunctional there right now. So probably a lot of reasons. But another reason is that it's clear that none of them agreed on anything. It's one of those decisions that come out from the Supreme Court that has like a bunch of different writings. And you have to, it's kind of a puzzle piece to figure out who agreed with who about what. And it's all about this thing called the Dormant Commerce Clause. If I, I'm not going to take time right now to try uh, feebly to explain what that means, uh, except to say it, it just has to do with how much states can limit commerce within their own interstate commerce within their own borders. If you want to hear more, I will be having Michael Dorf. That he's the uh, this very prestigious professor at Cornell University, passionate vegan, and he will be on the next um, Animal Law podcast to to do a much better explanation of what this case is all about. But basically, aside from the legal ramifications, and those are complex, but the factual complications are not that complex. The, the animal law movement, as long as I've been involved with it, kind of started out trying to do some stuff in Congress and trying to get some limitations on what horrors the meat industry can impose on animals and was unsuccessful. There was actually a long time ago, many years ago, maybe 10, 12 years ago, there was actually a bill that the egg producers and HSUS had agreed on to set some limits for what can be done to egg-laying hens. And they couldn't even get that through Congress, even though the egg producers had agreed to it because the cattlemen and the, I hate that term, cattlemen, the the cow abusers and the pig abusers refused to sign off on it so Congress wouldn't pass it. It was unbelievable. You couldn't get anything through Congress, as we all know. And Congress has probably become more dysfunctional since then. And certainly, regardless of who's in charge, is always dysfunctional on animal issues because the ag industry controls the ag committees. So the plan was set. All right, we can't do anything at the federal level. Let's try to do things at the state level. And of course, it's no easier to do things at the state level in, in legislatures than at the federal level. But in some states, you have ballot initiatives where you can put things on the ballot and have people vote on them. And every time that that happened, people would vote generally by an overwhelming margin to set these min- you know, minor but huge limitations on what you can do to animals. The most recent ones also set limitations on what you can sell. It's not just California pork producers. It's a very small number of people. But all producers, they want to sell their stuff in California. They have to be- obey these rules. And this was the case, the, the pork industry went nuts, egg industry, and the veal industry, which are the other two industries involved, kind of said, oh, okay, the writing's on the wall. But the pork industry went nuts, millions of lawsuits, and this is their latest one, went all the way to the Supreme Court. And from my reading of what they are saying about it, which hasn't been that much yet, they are in shock. They just think they run the world. They really do. They cannot believe that this conservative Supreme Court just split all over the place about what's okay here. And and the court, you know, the, the upshot, it's complicated. I'm sorry, but it's complicated. But the upshot is, is that California can do this. And so that's an enormous relief because it's the main campaign that we have had 
to try to get some limitation on what can be done to farm animals in this country is going state by state. And if, if you can't do that and you can't get anything through Congress, you, you know, then animal law is over. So that's my, uh, that's my summary. <laughs> and I'm excited that Michael Dorff, who's a constitutional law professor at Cornell, he is going to come on the Animal Law Podcast to describe it in much more detail and much more coherently than I just did. Very exciting. I can't wait to hear that episode. It's It really is. I have a lot of people who are not in the animal protection world in any way and know about this. So it's definitely a big deal. Very cool. So we have been hearing from a few of our flock members, uh, either in email or on Mighty Networks, about Because Animals, and they thought that perhaps it has dissolved, but it hasn't. So Because Animals is an incredible company that I, I had the pleasure of interviewing not that long ago. They were going to be one of the first out of the gate to be offering cultivated meat products for pets. Well, they have sold off their discontinued products to the former co-founder to basically accelerate the cultivated pet food technology. So they have not shuttered. According to Green Queen, and we will link to this in the show notes, cultivated meat innovation company, Cult Food Science. Acqui- I love that name. It's That's really a great good. name. Yeah, it really is acquired the consumer brand assets and the product formulations from Because Animals. And Shannon Falconer, who is the Because Animals CEO, sold off the discontinued products to the former co-founder in order to focus on the acceleration of uh, the cultivated pet food products. She wants to focus on getting her cultivated meat products onto the market. And so she had all of these treats that she's been making and she sold them to her, her former partner and who now founded Cult. Uh, and they're going to be taking out marketing that. But because Animals is not going out of business, that was what the rumor was going around. And, and according to this article, they're not going out of business. They're just hyper-focusing their efforts. So I really, really hope that's the case. And I really, really hope that they're wildly popular. Definitely. So wildly popular is a way of describing a topic that I recently covered when I have my other hat on, my WXXI hat, which is where I'm working when I'm not doing our hen house or some other work, WXXI being Rochester, New York's NPR member station. I have a growling dog here, I just want to say. Sorry about that, but he needs something and he's not getting his needs met. So he's growling. I too growl sometimes when I don't get my needs met. That was me. No, that was Marianne. I'm not getting my needs met either. I just want to make that clear. Cat overpopulation was one of the topics that I was able to cover when I was recently hosting Connections, which is the talk show here at WXXI. I am a fill-in host at WXXI's talk show. And I was able to cover the cat overpopulation issue by having a panel of guests. And the same day, I was able to also cover a show that I think would be interesting to many people on green burials, by the way, slight aside, but all sort of in the same uh, milieu, as you would say. I'm not sure green burials is, is is in the same milieu as cat overpopulation, but go on. So I would, well, the same milieu as our hen house. Like, are you implying that like 
we're dead or we're going to die. We or... are going to die. All right. I'm, all right. We yeah, are. You're right. You're right. You're and right. we don't want to They're hurt very, animals. very deeply connected. Right. We're going to die and, and, yep. and animals are going to die. So it's all the same topic. And apparently way fewer cats are dying because of being killed just because they have no home to go to, at least in this area. That was according to one of the one of the guests I had, which was very inspiring. I'm kind of surprised because I heard it was bad. But, you know, that's the way it goes with with these issues about overpopulation of companion animals. Like you hear all different things. And I until we get to zero, it's too many. That's for sure. A hundred percent. I agree. And, you know, I just have to say, like, the phones were ringing off the hook. Like, I couldn't get to all the calls that we had and I couldn't get to all of the emails that we I'm still getting emails about this topic. Like, people care really a lot. People care so much. Even though Animal Issues gets so much, so much feedback, I, I feel like that feedback's just doesn't have the same impact as feedback on other issues. You know, we, we, we have to not be dismissed anymore. And, you know, I think you being there and doing this show is a really, really good step in that direction. Yes, uh, I agree. I, I, it was definitely an honor to be there. I did get an email from one of the callers afterwards saying that the cat sanctuary that he runs, that he and his partner who run it are vegan and they've been vegan for a long time. And he was telling me that he wishes there were more vegans in that space. So that was nice to hear. That was like an inspiring way of ending a, the interview for what is a complicated subject. Yeah, I think there's more and more of people in the companion animal world finding the big connections. So that's a very hopeful sign. Yes, uh, totally. So we will link to that. And and it was an exciting thing to be able to cover almost as exciting as our guest today. I'm really, really stoked about this interview. So let's get to it. Louis Sahoyos is the executive director of the Oceanic Preservation Society and is recognized as one of the top photographers in the world. His first documentary film, The Cove, won the Academy Award for Best Documentary Film of 2009 and over 75 other awards around the world. His second film, Racing Extinction, was nominated for an Emmy and an Academy Award and sparked the hashtag Start With One Thing movement. The Game Changers, executive produced by James Cameron, gave rise to dramatic increases worldwide in plant-based diets. I remember when I was in Cardiff, <laughs> Wales, waiting for, like, waiting to buy basically a subway card. And the people behind me, these, like, college kids, these guys were talking about this movie. And I was like, <laughs> it was just, I, I turned around and I was like, oh, my God. You know, I was definitely the weirdo American, but, you know, whatever. Louis will be joining Marianne right after this. Our friends at fakemeats.com have been a one-stop shop for meat substitutes, egg replacers, and more since 2011. Many of us, including me, definitely me, have been searching for vegan meat with a shorter ingredient list, and fakemeats.com has come through with the release of their very own Plant Basics product line. Plant Basics brings us back to basics with their hearty plant proteins and plant-based seasonings. The proteins come in four varieties, all unflavored, gluten-free, non-GMO, kosher, and low sodium, and made with, get this, only one ingredient. 
You heard me, one, one ingredient. The classic ground strips and chunks are each made from soy, while the crumbles are created with pea protein, which is basically magic. They come unflavored, so season them any way you like. If you're looking to create a meaty flavor, the plant-based seasonings come in three varieties, just like chicken, just like beef, and just like ham. All plant-based, all gluten-free, non-GMO, kosher, and made using simple ingredients. Want to whip up a rich broth for a soup? Try Just Like Ham. Or grab some classic ground and sprinkle on some Just Like Beef and bam, it's taco night. I have to say, I particularly love the Just Like Beef because I have been so into tacos recently. I don't know if it's because I'm missing Southern California, but man, the tacos are something I crave. And once this arrived in the mail, I was like, done. Itch scratched. I love it. Anyway, you don't have to take my word for it because fakemeats.com is giving our listeners 15% off Plant Basics products through July 2023 using coupon code HENHOUSE23. That's HENHOUSE23, all caps, H-E-N-H-O-U-S-E-2-3 to get 15% off the Plant Basics line only on fakemeats.com. And you guys, I love it. And I know you will too. Welcome to our hen house, Louie. Oh, glad to be here. It's a pleasure to have you here. We're very excited. I'm such a huge fan and I'm sure many of our listeners are as well. Obviously, we want to get into the individual movies, each of which has had so much meaning for so many people. But before that, can I just ask you like kind of a big question? Like, the through line. Would you say there's a through line to all of your work? Could you just give us like the theme? Oh boy. Well, you know, I've always used, I'm a photographer. I was a photographer with National Geographic over the course of about 18 years. When people think of National Geographic, they think of beautiful pictures. But to me, it's like, how could you use beautiful pictures to change the world? And I know that sounds highfalutin, like I must be full of myself, but it's like, it's the truth. You're reaching one person at a time with anything you do, whether it's a podcast or a world-class photographic magazine. But you can use those pictures to entertain, or you can use those pictures to entertain and change the world, change that person. And when you change one person, you're changing the world. And I'm not saying that everything I did was always doing that, but that was always the motivation. Like, how can you use photography, this very powerful arrow in your quiver, to change things with the, you know, that when I worked for National Geographic, they had 11 million subscribers, four people saw each one. So 15% of America, 44 million people saw the magazine every month. It took about a year, year and a half to do a story. But the through line is, I think the world's off balance, severely off balanced. It's called shifting baseline. You know, scientists call it shifting baseline, where one generation has to adapt to the, the diminishment caused by the previous one. The world's still a beautiful place, don't get me wrong, but we could do so much better to preserving it for future generations. It's been likened that we're ecologically, we're borrowing more money without paying off the debt. And the debt is just being more conscious of what we're doing to the planet. So if there's a metaphor, a through line, I think it's like, I feel like given the talents that the team and I have, it's like we're crew members of the ship that's about to go over a waterfall or something or into a storm. And we can just, once in a while, we're allowed to get up there and do a slight course correction. 
We're not able to heal it completely, but we're able to keep mitigating some of the damage. You know, I used to think that we're, you know, let's make the world a better place than we found it. But now I think, well, let's at least leave the world a better place because we came this way, that the world's a little bit better on course. And then, you know, it'll be up to the next generation of children to sneak up to the pilot house and the controls, but at least we can illuminate the way a little bit. Yeah, I could actually, this is really beautifully said, like our line that goes with our organization is change the world for animals. And yeah, it sounds like, of course, we're not going to change the world for animals, but of course you are. I disagree with that. We're, we're doing it. We're doing it at scale. I mean, you know, they're killing 23,000 dolphins and porpoises every year for human consumption in Japan. Yeah. About the time that we made that film, started making that film. The last year, I remember that they had statistics. They, they killed 1,610 in Japan. 1,600. Yeah. It's down over 93%. Yeah. Not just because of that film, but because of the activism around it. Yeah. The awareness it created in the Japanese people that they now know that dolphin and porpoise meat is toxic. It's riddled with all sorts of heavy chemicals like mercury, mercury being the most toxic, non-radioactive chemical in the world. You know, they were eating it as like a health food in Japan. That's not happening at scale anymore. So, I mean, I wholeheartedly disagree with this idea that we can't make a difference. I certainly didn't mean to sound like that. When we're talking about animals, yeah, well, I'm just saying, changing I'm, the world for one of them is an entire life, is an entire life. If you can uh, change the, you don't have to change the entire world. You can, you can do what you can and you have done an enormous, let's talk, let, and let's talk about the cove. Let's start there. Was that the first movie you ever made? It was. Yeah, that's. Is there anybody else who who won an Oscar for the first movie they ever made? Uh, well, Annie Costner, Kevin Costner's daughter, used to work with me when I was doing our, our second film, Racing Extinction. I had dinner with her father and her down in New Orleans. This is during the Gulf oil spill, and I was just coming off at of the Cove. And I said, it's really hard to think about your second film being a success after your first one does so well. And he says, tell me about it. My first film I ever did was Dances with Wolves. I think it won like six or seven Academy Awards. <laughs> <laughs> There's three films I can think of that had sort of similar narratives. Dances with Wolves and Avatar and The Cove. Ex-military guy goes to mm. natives, in the case of the Avatar, that are nine feet long and blue. Same thing with the Cove. Finds out they're more intelligent and sentient than he realized, and then creates a, a ragtag army to vanquish his own species. So that was the, the kind of the narrative through line of all, the, all three of those films. But yeah, I never even thought about awards when we were making the Cove. We were just saying, well, let's get this scene somewhere, anywhere. Then there was this huge, huge upheaval you know, this is during the banking crisis of 2008, 2009. And I think six or seven of the big distributors went out of business, just were vanquished from the earth. And so there's very little place for a film like ours to be seen. We got into Sundance. We won Sun Sundance. It was really difficult. And then we just went on this. I didn't know there were so many awards. The Cove became the first documentary in history to sweep all the film guilds. It you won about 70 top film awards from Sundance to the Academy Award. But the North Star was always like to change what's going on over there. And I remember a philosophy student telling me, it wasn't a philosophy, he was a philosophy teacher, teaches at UCSF. And he said, you think you're going to change the world with the film? I said, well, I know that's the dream. And 
now it, it has. We dream worlds, right? You dream, you change the world with stories. You don't change them necessarily with information. If the information strikes that emotion in the people's hearts, then you have a better chance. Some people change, but a very small percentage of the population actually will change behavior based on what they know. You have to get use that information to get at their hearts some way. And I think that's what storytelling does. And I think when you get the medium of Movies are so powerful. I call them, you know, it's the most powerful weapon in the world, I think, that we have for social change. Mark Twain said the difference between the almost right word and the right word is the difference between the lightning bug and the lightning. And I think when you have the right words, the right pictures, and the right score, the right music coming together with the right story, you create a lightning storm of synapses in the brain. So that when people come out of one of our films, they're like, oh my God, the world's a little bit different. We're using the same sort of devices that Hollywood uses. It's a thriller. You know, Rolling Stone said- Exactly, yeah. They said of the Cove at Rolling Stone magazine, they said it's a cross between Born Identity and, and Flipper. We constructed it like that, but it's almost, at the same time, it's almost like a, like a legal brief. A great litigator will tell the jury a story and take them to a place that they couldn't imagine. And at the end of the day, the verdict is how do you get the jury, which is the individual audience member, to go to look at their lives a little bit differently and say, not just, oh, that was a great film. Who cares about that? There's a, there's a lot of great films out there, and they make a lot more money than we do. But to me, our North Star is how do you change the world? How do you change that one person in the seat so that they change their diet? They change the way that they look at the natural world. They change the way that they look at their place in the universe. Their eyes get open for maybe for the first time in a way that hasn't been done before. And that's the challenge that we face is that there's so much information right now, which is wonderful. It's a beautiful thing that we have these incredibly powerful devices always within arm's length right now. We're not trying to get likes and millions of people to follow us. We're just trying to change each single person that sees our content. And in a meaningful way. So I'm always thinking about the audience. What are you saying to them? What are you going to say with this scene? What are they going to get out of it? How's this going to build on the narrative? They come out of the theater, they're thinking, my life has just changed. Yeah, I totally agree with you. And that's one of the things I really wanted to focus on, especially like talking about stories. I mean, people are moved by stories. And I think one of the great achievements of your movies is, well, at least the ones that deal with particularly the cove and rates and extinction, is to tie the loss of these animals and the loss of species to the tragedy and loss of one animal. The way you dealt with the rays in racing extinction, I think, was particularly moving. You actually brought that animal to life. That's really hard to do. And you also kind of do it with the people, highlight the emotional side of the environmentalists. I mean, so so often, I mean, these guys frequently, a lot of them just, they seem like scientists. They're not used to expressing themselves emotionally. And, and you manage to catch them at the moment that they're starting to tear up and you just see that. Is that a big goal of yours to, to kind of bring in both the animal story and the story of the people who care about them? Absolutely. You know, I've been working with scientists since I was in my 20s now with National Geographic, you know, doing science stories for them. You go out to dinner with a scientist and they're telling you there's amazing stories. You think, oh, I just can't wait. I can't wait till the writer gets that. I want to get that. But when they get in front of the writer, they turn into PhDs. All of a sudden, yeah, the part yeah. of the brain clicks on where they're thinking they're really speaking for the seven people 
that they're trying to impress, their muses. Instead of thinking of the audience, they're thinking of, you know, how is this going to affect my profession? What are my peers going to think of me? That's how they've been trained, too. They're trained to talk like that. Yeah, and they're much more unguarded one-on-one because they have to do it because they're scientists. They have to hedge. They have to be overly conservative and not be screamy. And here, here we are, like, in the middle of a mass extinction event, this change of ecosystems on a grand scale that the Earth has never seen before, except when the comet hit the planet 66 million years ago. And we're sitting around putting thermometers on it and doing acidity readings and all this stuff. All all that needs to be done, of course, but we're not taking action. And what we try to do is interpret those physical laws into something that people can read. Now, let me give you a a stat that I find phenomenal. There were 7,000 studies done previous to the 1964 U.S. Surgeon General's report that smoking is hazardous to your health. 7,000 studies. 30 years later, we were still smoking on planes. There was still smoke in restaurants. There was still smoking in bars. And the industry was crying about how they're going to lose all this money and people wouldn't fly if they couldn't smoke, et cetera, et cetera. It never happened, but that allowed this to go on for three decades. What happened, the lever there was secondhand smoke, right? That was the lever. Totally. And so this is important, I think, with the animal rights side. Something that we've learned is, and you know, everybody listening to this is probably an empath. They feel deeply about animals, and that's why we're here together, and that's what motivates us. And we think if we could only get people to think exactly like us and feel like us, they would act like us. But the studies show that there's only about 6 or 7% of the population will change their diet based on animals or climate. And therefore, it's not a matter of another billboard, another documentary showing ants and humanity to animals. It's really how do you flip a lever What's the secondhand smoke for the animal rights movement? And there's a lot of them. And I just don't think we're pushing on the right ones. If you only have a cohort of 6 to 7% of the population that will hear your message, you're still about 3 to 4% shy of creating the tipping point for change. So the, there's some great studies that show that for the science of social change, you need 10% of the population, not 9%, 9 9.5%, not 7 of the population, 100% committed to the truth. And then that will be the lever that starts to flip. It'll be unstoppable. I talked to the lead author of that one particular study, and he sent me the paper, and it it had about three pages of algorithms in it. I called him back up. I said, listen, you know, can you explain this to me like a kindergartner? Like, what is this all saying? He said, well, it's like if you're trying to create steam, You'll never be able to do it until you get water up to a boiling point, 100 degrees Celsius, 212 degrees Fahrenheit. That's the tipping point for social change. Otherwise, you're just heating up water. And he said you could do that to the end of time, but you won't create steam. So 10% of the population, 100% committed. There's some numbers that show that once you get to 30%, then people are doing it just because other people are doing it. There's... Other studies that show that the moteliers, hoteliers put a little placard you see in the bathroom that said, they'll save this much energy if you hang up this towel and reuse it just like you do at home. Nobody does it. Very few people will actually do it. But you put a placard that says 78% of the people that live <laughs> that, that use this hotel room hang up their towels 
then they then the statistically more people. I love that. I yeah. just love that. So, and that's not to say that we're lemmings or that we're stupid. It's just to say that's just the way yeah. it is. We're you know, primates, and you know there are tendencies. Not lemmings exactly, but we like to act as a group. Yeah. So how can you use all the tools at your disposal? And so when we did the film, The Game Changers, it was very studied. Everybody in that film was an animal rights advocate, almost everybody. But we knew that, you know, there's some white papers that were done by the vegan mafia that said that, what's wrong? You know, we're collectively over the decades, hundreds of millions of dollars into this movement and nothing's happening. And a white paper showed that people had this belief that it was normal, necessary, naturally eat this way. And it was really the men who were the obstacles to adopting the diet because women still primarily, primarily, I'm not saying always, just primarily buy the food and cook it. And a guy, because he's marketed to so heavily about you need meat to be strong and endurability. And so we just attacked that full on. And, you know, we use James Wilkes, who's a killer. You know, he teaches the federales and the Navy SEALs how to subdue people with their bare hands. So any guy looking at James Wilkes will look, will, say is anything but the typical vegan you know he was like the anti-vegan and then he goes and he gets injured finds out what he needs for recovery finds out that the gladiators were in fact mostly vegetarians etc etc that's his story takes us on that venture and that film you know merrill lynch did a study that said over a 15-year period the film's only been out for about four years they said over the 15-year period 75 percent of the worldwide interest in plant-based diet is because of that film. Yeah, I I don't doubt that at all. I'm pretty familiar with all of the movies. And that's the one that you show people who you think you can never talk into it. Uh, That's the movie, yeah. But we use science. We use the studies. We use the methodology. There's another white paper done. So who will guys listen to? Sports heroes and Ivy League people at the top of their profession from an Ivy League background. Right, we used right. Walter Willis, the head of nutrition at Harvard, the head of anthropology at Harvard, et cetera, et cetera. Those are all like top people in the field. And it was effective. Those are expensive movies, but they're not like a Hollywood movie where they cost hundreds of millions of dollars, but for a few million, we're changing the world. So to me, it's just a matter of how do you get the funding to do these films and how do you find that lever? The world doesn't need another film. They need another film that's going to help us become a little bit more. One, one of the things that I felt was one of your levers that you use so effectively is appealing to people's sense that they've been deceived, that things are hidden from people. I mean, that's really true in The Game Changers, that this is shocking information to people, that this food might be good to you. Then they've really been deceived about it, but about all of the films. I mean, they're deceived about how much cruelty there is to animals. They're deceived about how many wild animals that are losing That's particularly true in Racing Extinction when you get to the end and you highlight this beautiful photographic imagery on the buildings that I'd like to talk about as well. And people are are wrapped because they really don't know this and they don't know it because they've been deceived. Is that one of the ways that you talk to people? And, And I wonder whether it resonates with you personally that you felt that some of these things were shocking to you and that you had been deceived. Well, deceived is a strong word. I'm thinking of, let's say, the game changers and doctors. I think a lot of the the research doctors know this information. But you talk to the average doctor in America, 
they have no training at all. And I no. mean, like, like maybe one hour of nutritional study in their whole medical career, like one hour. And that, and that could be, what do you put into the IV bag? Hippocrates said, I don't know, 2,500 years ago, let food be thy medicine. And now we're understanding more than ever. It's the fringe doctors, the ones that do lifestyle medicine that were on the outside that are becoming on the inside now because it's this, this crazy idea that what you put in your mouth and what you do to your body, let's say moderate exercise, might be actually helpful. Now they're finding that there's incredible advantages to a whole foods, plant-based diet and moderate exercise in conjunction with other things like good sleep, whatever. Things that we should have learned a long time ago, but if our doctors don't know, I think money is a huge motivator. So when you go to things like dietary guidelines that they do every five years, like those are political guidelines. And then we have to understand that. This is what the politicians are telling us, but it's filtered through all their lobbyists. And who are the lobbyists? They're not the people growing broccoli and alfalfa sprouts. They're the people growing beef and big ag and big pharma. You know, I, I don't think the big pharma has a say at the dietary guidelines, but it's certainly politicians, constituents in cattle growing states or chicken growing states or pork growing states, all they're lobbying for nutritional guidelines. So in that sense, we're definitely lied to. Yeah, absolutely. So giving people information or counter information to it, and then they could go look it up themselves. I probably can't talk about it too much, but I'm doing a big Netflix special right now on food. And I'm, I'm so excited by it. It's a, it's a four part series. But it's just been incredibly eye-opening because I want to know. Well, yeah, I, I probably can't talk about it too much. It's coming out January 1st of the 2024, but it's going to be powerful. I think it's going to be one of the most effective films done in this movement. And because we have four parts to deal with it and we're doing it in kind of this thriller style as well, I think we'll have a chance to bring in the animal rights side of it in a way that can you know, slip it in there. Because if you've been to a CAFO, some percent, 99.1% of the animals that we eat come from these confined animal feeding operations. And if anybody has ever been in one, it sears your brain, the smell, the conditions. And this is, we're talking every bit of McDonald's, McDougan's, every burger you've ever put in your mouth, every, you know, you know, people say, oh, I get my chicken from you know free range well yeah yeah yeah. free range isn't what they think it is you know of course not that's sometimes cage free just means that they have about less than a notebook paper of area on a feces filled floor to trudge around in their own filth it's all nonsense it's all nonsense and even when people say it they basically mean well you know once they went out to a restaurant and they ordered the free range or whatever it's nobody's doing it all well maybe a few people are but yeah it's all nonsense yeah, yeah it's, it's all horrifying yeah yeah so how can you open people's eyes to that and i think we're at that point that we can start to move those dials you know yay to- i hope you're right i'm so pl- glad you told me that you're making this and i'm so frustrated that you then said but i can't tell you any more about it but this is very exciting news it's exciting when you start to see the data that comes out of this. It's so important this information gets out there. But it, like, yeah, it's just like this. The, the information is out there. It's just that it hasn't been channeled in a way in an entertaining vehicle. And it's, exactly, 
It's, it's like the, and, the, and people don't want to know. So you have to get past some resistance. Like people aren't going to dial in to necessarily follow the social media that's going to tell them this. They would like to not know, but it doesn't mean that they will refuse to know if they are shown in a way that they can digest it. Yeah, remember, so to speak. Remember that transitional period, maybe it was 10 or 15 years ago, where you had your friends or relatives that would go smoke and they would try to get away with it at a restaurant or they go excuse themselves in between courses and they go out and have a smoke together. And then it became like, oh, they're one of those people and they became ostracized. I think we're seeing that happen with meat now. Uh, where do you live? <laughs> oh, I live in upstate New York, Rochester. Okay. Well, it's a little bit more rural, maybe. it's. I think in, in the urban centers, it's happening. I teach animal law, and I'm very, very familiar with all the numbers and, the, and what's happening, like more familiar than I want to be. Okay. Well, there's, okay. But, but, uh, Tony Saba, who's a futurist, I remember him giving a talk at an environmental conference, and this is back in the early 2000s. And to be an environmentalist back in the early 2000s was to be like the fringe of the fringes. And I, I had one of the first three electric cars in Colorado, a 2002 fully electric Toyota RAV. It was powered by 114 solar panels. And I was so excited by this thing, I went and bought two more cars. And so I had half the electric vehicles in Colorado. Oh my God, I love it. I love it. And I thought I, I discovered the Holy Grail, right? It's like, my God, this car is amazing. That's magic. Will, what it, would it cost? How far does it go? Back then it was like 120 miles, but boy, it didn't cost me anything for that. I didn't have to go to an oil change. I didn't have to go and sit and wait at a Jiffy Lube reading stupid math <laughs> for an hour or be told to come back in two hours. Or I'd hate garages and fixing cars. And there's very little to go wrong with an electric car. And I was paying for it like pennies per mile as opposed to $5 a gallon. Anyway, it took so long to, to get that word out. Now, let me give, give you an idea. Okay, so... That was a 2002 Toyota RAV. I bought it a few years later. In Racing Extinction, we took a Tesla Model S and we turned it into like a bond car for the environment. We wanted to make like a sexy right, right. environmental car. So we, it's the right. first car in the world to have an electroluminescent paint job. We could right. change. With, with Leilani Multer. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, she's yeah. been on the podcast, yeah. Yeah, we drove that car together out of the Tesla factory and she wasn't on the road with it for a minute. And she turned to me and said, every other car on the road just became a relic. Now we had, we were interviewing Elon Musk for that film. This was in 2012 and we were, we were going to interview him in October. And he wrote back and said, can we change the interview till the end of next quarter? And I said, sure. Why? He said, well, I could go bankrupt. And 10 years later, he's the richest guy in the world. These 10-year increments are really important to remember. And I was bringing up Tony Saber, the futurist. And I had a great-grandmother who was born in the 1880s. 1880s. So she was like in her 20s when horses came. And she was from New York. She used to swim in the East River. The Bronx used to be the Bronx's farm as a family. I just have to say, I had a grandmother who was born in the Bronx in the 1880s. So okay. who knows? <laughs> <laughs> Well, so when there was all horses back in the 1900s, there's a famous picture taken, I think it was down Broadway of the Easter parade of 1900. It was all horses, except for one car. 13 years later, it was re completely reversed. It was all cars and one horse. My great grandmother said that 
it stunk in New York. You know, there's 20,000 tons of horsemen who are in the streets every day. Horses would yeah. die. Nobody would pick them up. There's 60,000 gallons of urine. You could smell New York from six miles away, you know, sailing into the into the city. So it was anything but but pretty. Now, cars are become something else, but horses weren't what we thought it was. There's flies, smell, bring those smells into the offices, into the schools, et cetera, et cetera. You know, in 2000, was it 2007, we were hitting the number two key six times on our flip phones to text to capital C. So these changes happen really quickly. Yeah. And I think they're going to... Quicker and quicker every day. Yeah. And so I think... You watch a TV show from 10 years ago, and you don't even understand the tech they're using. The phones look ridiculous. (laughs) Exactly. So these things, it's, it's happening pretty quick. Obviously, it's not as quick as I would like. But instead of moping about it, what are we going to do about it? And we're doing something about it. And this, and to me, it doesn't feel like work. It just feels like a gift, like to do something meaningful. I'm excited. Every That's, night that I go to bed, I think I can't wait to wake up in the morning and do something to put these pieces of the puzzle back together, to put these films together. We're working on six films right now. I'm just, can you tell us more about any of them other than the, the sure. Netflix one, which you won't talk about? <laughs> well, I did. I probably talked too much about it already. Uh, <laughs> we're doing one on the Loser ecosystem. It's called The Last Place on Earth. The Loser is a, a national forest in Indonesia. It's the last place where wild animals like tigers, elephants, rhinos, and orangutans are in the wild together. And we're focusing on these mostly local activists that are getting back these illegal palm oil plantations and um Letting them, they regenerate quickly back into form. Oh. So we're following them, these four activists. We're doing a film on, boy, plastic pollution solutions, because plastic is a is a huge problem. But we find I think I think that's the lever with, with this is that the human health angle with plastics. I mean, listen, I run an organization called the Oceanic Preservation Society, and I can't tell you how many times I've gone to the the ocean. And I can't even hop in because of the all the garbage floating in there. The last two times I was in Europe, I never even got in the water because I was looking down there and it was like a landfill, like an aquatic landfill being yeah. by. Yeah. And okay, so the problem but is- But you're, you're making a movie about solutions though, not just about the problem. Right, but here's the lever. Like three years ago, when we started the research in this film, we thought, well, let's look at all the films that have been done. And, you know, it was like, oh my God, they were so depressing how many more rivers of plastic do you or gyres of plastic do you you know we know that we've always been thinking what's the lever and the the lever i think is the human health angle again it's it's that they didn't have the ways to measure microplastics before like they do now but now they've they found it's just in the last year they found microplastics in the placenta fetuses they found it in breast milk they found it in the brains of people. The chemicals, the plasticizing chemicals, the phthalates that are used to soften or harden plastics, those chemicals are now in our body and they're obesogens. They're affecting our intelligence. They're affecting our, what's called an obesogen. It's like our your weight. It, it can genetically affect not just your own weight, but your progeny's weight mm-hmm. four generations down. We think that's the lever when people understand what that's these plastics are making their way. This kind of toxic trespass is coming into our bodies. That's going to be the lever. 
then the trick is it's not unlike the game changes the film about plant-based athletes you can be convinced to say okay i'm gonna go to the grocery store i'm gonna spend more time in the veggie aisle now it's pretty easy to fix yeah this one you can't do it so quick but what we can do is highlight laws that can be should be made like they do on Mm -hmm. the eu we've only outlawed i think a few dozen chemicals here and they have like over a thousand in the eu and there should be tens of thousands that need to be studied before they get put into the bloodstream of infants and you know people in america anywhere but the industry doesn't want that done but we'll do a film about that and we're doing a film on female big wave surfers they got pay parity in the sport of big wave surfing that sounds like fun yeah that's that's a good one and boy we got one on the fermi paradox and the great filter which is essentially there's all these existential threats that are out there besides just humanity that create a need for us to potentially get our dna or the life of the planet into another uh you know into another solar system that's like really the opposite of the female surfers movie that one doesn't sound like fun at all well that, that's lani's uh, <laughs> doing that she total existential risk I want to get back to another question about making movies, which I guess some of the movies that you're planning on will involve these kinds of issues. But there's some stuff in your movies that's really horrible. I mean, it's horrible to see. It's upsetting. And I'm just always curious as a filmmaker, how do you judge how much to show so that people don't just shut down or turn Mm -hmm. it off? Where do you draw that line? You test it. When we did the cove, that was done with hidden cameras. We snuck into the cove using thermal cameras and drones and night vision. You know, we we used all the tech that we could we had available to us, but we had to go back and retrieve these fake rocks that had cameras hidden in them. And when we came back, we had forty hours of footage, and I thought, and some of it was just like so horrible. Yeah. I was thinking, okay, I'll let the editors deal with this stuff. They'll figure it out. And I was looking over the shoulder of another edit, four editors that are all looking at this footage. And we had, the footage was really, you know, the central to the, the film. It was a small part of the film, but it was central to it. These were the first hard drive cameras ever made by anybody. And Sony, we had these prototypes. And we, the hard drives, there wasn't even a way to get the information off of them for a year. So we kept on just replacing the hard drives, the internal hard drives. And we stacked them up in the air conditioning ducts of the hotels in Japan. We had runners every day that would whisk these hard drives back to America on DHL or FedEx. And we had this stack of hard drives we could finally look at like a year later because they developed the technology. Wow. To actually. Wow. To, and I thought, okay, I don't have to relive that. Let the editors do it. I was looking over at the show. I had a question for one editor. Another editor was scrubbing over. Well, scrubbing means where you, there's like a scroll bar and you can just basically drag this, your mouse over this, this image of this video and you can, you can take it, watch it in real time and have it be four hours and 10 minutes, or you can, you can scrub it and watch it in 10 seconds. And when editors get lazy and they scrub through it really fast, looking just for some action, then they'll slow down and take a look at it. And on the screen, it was just a, an image of a, one of the, the cameras we set in the cove and it was looking down at the cove and it, it just killed the dolphins and you don't see any dolphins, but it's all red. It was just surrealistic, you know, like a, yeah. It was like something out of a Stephen King movie because the water had turned just like full of blood. And so it looked all calm and you could hear the birds chirping. 
this editor scrubbing through it. I saw this little black blip come up. And I go, what was that? He goes, oh, nothing, nothing. And I said, no, don't go back, go back. And we took a long time to find it because it was very glitchy. This and that, what it was was they'd send divers down, like snorkelers, to go down because mm-hmm. de- when they kill a dolphin, the dolphins go down to the bottom. They don't float, and so they sent these divers down to retrieve the bodies. And this diver had come up, and he looked. He blew blood out of a snorkel. He looked around, and then he went back into the water and he had these yellow fins that disappeared slowly into the blood as he dove back down. And I thought, that's so powerful you don't see any dolphins at all but yeah it says something about how routine it was to them that they're swimming in it It just became this incredible metaphor and i thought well i can't rely on these editors to come up with the good stuff so i sat and watched all myself it took a month and i was in absolute tears going i mean i'm not not saying just metaphorically i was like crying my studio back then ops headquarters is in the backyard i would just be like oh my god I'm going to have to look at this stuff again. I thought, I remember saying to myself, if there's a God, let those animals' lives not be wasted in vain. Let me get something out of this. And what we had come up with was that I, I, I hate horror movies. And I realized that we had a really wicked, potentially wicked horror movie. And I hate horror movies growing up. And I went back and watched all the ones I didn't want to see when I was a kid, all the Hitchcock films, and I noticed that the best of them, Hitchcock created these, if you see like Rebecca, the film Rebecca, it's about this woman that does this atrocious murder, but like it's all done with lighting and music and innuendo. Yeah. And we had, there's a one scene in the cove. And so I went back and tried to find all those pieces, all those kind of surrealistic pieces. There was one scene that we did. We built an underwater camera that had was, had a rock in it. You know, it was like a concrete rock. And we put it in the cove, and it was voted best scene in a movie that year. Here's the scene, and people say, "Oh, that was so horrible," but he didn't see anything. <laughs> what they saw was it was like in front of a fern, underwater fern. A school of stinging catfish come by, and then you hear the boats coming in the distance and the dolphins screaming, and then you hear the pipes banging. And that's because that's how they get the, you know, that's how we set this up before. That's how they get the dolphins to crowd them into cope. These this wave of underwater sound that scares the dolphins. And that's how they herd them into the secret cove. And then you see the water go turn from green to red and it's not faked. And, you know, it, what you saw, you, you right. all the horror was in your head. And in the film, in the code, the people say, oh, that scene was so hard to watch. But if you look at it, you never see a harpoon go directly into a dolphin. You witness a lot of horrible, you see a baby dolphin jump out of the water, out of, you know, obviously there's horror going there and it, it dives onto the rocks by a fisherman's feet and rolls back down. It was all surreal, surrealistic stuff. And we realized that we could tell the story with just a very little bit. Your impetus is to show everything and it's too much. A little bit of violence goes a long, long, long way. Oh, I totally agree. That is a fascinating story. And I really, I mean, I hear the spirit of Hitchcock within that. I mean, I don't watch any modern horror movies because they, exactly, they show too much. It's that anticipation or that imagination, imagining what's going on beyond. And the use of sound, that is a fascinating story. I'm really glad you told it to us. 
The other thing that I think that you use so effectively, at least in both The Cove and Racing Extinction, not as relevant to the other movies, is this sort of undercover operative kind of story, which you took part in. Can you tell us a little bit about why? I mean, I think that was really effective. It gave a feeling of adventure to the whole thing. But can you just tell us a little bit about what it's like to do that and how scary it is? If it's scary, I assume it is because it looks really scary. Way more scary, especially when you're in a foreign country, you know. Yeah, yeah. We still do, for the series I'm doing on food for Netflix, we did a few undercover things, and it brought me right back to those days. It's still scary, even when it's in America. You're exposing something that people don't want, and you're affecting their income. You're affecting their livelihood. You're saying something about who we are, and you're using those people as proxies. I mean, there's a reason that they have ag-gag laws, because if people saw where the food comes from. I mean, look, look what happened to dolphin hunting in Japan after somebody got in there with cameras, after we got in there with cameras and exposed what happened. The business went down 60% the first year. I'm actually proud of that. And the town says we've made them into villains. Well, okay, I didn't make them into anything. I just showed what happened. Yeah, people see our films and they say, oh, bring me out on an undercover operation. And I go like, you know, I said, you really don't understand what that's like. And I remember this one person I was hanging out with and I said, okay, there's actually something I've got to go do at a store here in San Francisco. We had masks on. This is during the pandemic. I can't tell too much about what we were doing, but we had buttonhole cameras and, you know, a couple different hidden cameras. And right before we got there, she said, I can't do this. And we had a, you know, we had a car waiting outside. We're in I hear her. I totally yeah. hear her. Yeah. It's, it's, <laughs> it's like, okay, now, now imagine you're in China. You're faking being a legal shark oil salesman, you know, that you're buying thousands. Oh, and they're of probably fairly tough people. I mean, they're in a tough business. Oh, and plus they have the governments yeah. behind them. And so like you could, uh, I'm assuming you could disappear pretty easily in, in China. But in the U.S., yeah, we have ag-ag laws, but, you know, a lot of them have been held unconstitutional, and a lot of states don't have ag-ag laws, and a lot of film has been taken of what's going on in factory farms. In fact, animal protection groups have been doing that for a while, and it did change. It changed things a lot. Before that, it was just like this black box, and nobody had any idea. But it hasn't changed things that much. What, What can be done with that kind of footage that makes it more moving to people? I'll go back to the film that you did of the manta rays. Because they're wild animals, you could compare the horror with the beauty. And it's so hard to do that with animals in factory farms. They just look like victims. And tell me, what is it? Why doesn't that film get out and make people... We're so horrified that this is going on. And when people really register it, this happens all the time with my students. I teach animal law, and some of them have never seen it before. And when they see it, they're forced to watch it because it's in class and they have no choice. And they're they're in shock, absolute shock. But this is their world. This is where all their food comes from. What's the disconnect? I mean, we have some film, but it's not being, it's not getting to people the way your films have. Well, I think it's probably not wrapped up in the right story, the right package. And we're doing it with this new Netflix series that I'm working on. And I think it's going to be very effective. But, you know, I've only seen the first two episodes together, and I'm, I'm pitching myself because I think that it could be really good. All these ideas, they start out as a dream, right? Like a collective dream. You get a bunch of really talented people together, and you think, okay. Now, this is how I start out talking to the crew. I said, I have no idea 
how we're going to put this all together. But we're going to start out here. And at the end of the day, I want people to be thinking about what they're putting in their mouth, what they're putting on their plate. Because what they're putting on their plate can change them and it can change the world. So how we get there exactly, I'm not sure. We're going to be doing this together. But I'll be a ringleader, but it's really kind of a, I had to explain, it's like a dysfunctional government. I'm trying to be like maybe a president where you have need a really powerful judicial and executive branch. You need great editors. You need great producers. You need other people to give notes. And we test our films a lot, at least three times with audiences and not friendly audiences. They don't have to be. It's better at some points, like towards the end, to not have people that know story as much like how to make a movie you want to hear it from an audience. And it's like, what are they getting? What's, yeah. what's their takeaway? Yeah. And sometimes sometimes you're giving people the information, but you're not giving it at the right time or in a way that they can hear it. And this is all, this all goes back to storytelling. You listen to comedians hone their craft, and you see like a Netflix special. They'll work it for like a year and a half before they do a Netflix special. And they think, well, does it take a year and a half to come up with all those jokes? It takes a year and a half to refine them. They're checking on timing. They're checking on wording. Going back to what Twain said, the difference between the almost right word and the right word is the difference between the lightning bug and the lightning. They're trying to have that hit. They're trying to create that lightning, and they want to kill. The good ones are doing social change, social commentary. They're getting people to look at themselves, but we're trying to do that. And I'm assuming that people are maybe getting delivered the joke, but they're not hearing the tone or the delivery or the story or the why of it. It's a craft. It's an art and it's a craft. You know, we have to test our films just like an actor does in front of an audience and watch the reactions and listen to their commentary and evolve. You're iterating, right? It's it's not like everything we we take is going to be amazing. It's like, but you can get to amazing if you keep your North Star tight, if you always keep that in focus. Now, I think the problem, maybe in some ways we have a little bit easier tasks than some filmmakers. And I don't mean to compare myself to <laughs> Well, no, I mean... I cannot yeah. imagine how you have an easier task, well, tell because, me. Because what most of them are trying to do is just make money. You know, butts and seats, $10 in a box of popcorn, or, you know, how do you judge the success of a movie? It's either by how much bank does it make? How much money? Right, exactly. Like, they've only made $27 million their first weekend. Oh, that director's never going to work again. Well, if we, <laughs> if we made $27 million on a documentary, we'd be like, well, first of all, it'd be like, okay, how many more docs can we make out of this thing? <laughs> but I think if you say, we know what reaction that we want from the audience. Not that everybody's going to feel the same after they see a film, but... If it's just out there trying to entertain people, then it's like, so what? You know, um, yeah. people yeah. do it at a very high level. There's quite a few narrative directors that are always thinking about, I want to say the same genre that we're doing. It's not documentary, but it's like they're trying to maybe use films to, to do everything as well, to be entertaining and push the envelope for cultural change. But, you know, we're doing it on pennies on the dollar compared to what they're doing it on. And we're, but... It seems to me that your job is much harder than anybody's job because you're trying to tell people things that they don't want to know, or at least I think they don't want to know them. But the thing that you do have that is you have total truth on your side. Like, it's just, you, all you have to do is tell the truth somehow and get people to listen to it because it's all true. 
Well, you say tell the truth, but that's what the scientists think too. But you it, have to say it in a way they can hear it. Yeah, like there's this wonderful woman, Shauna Swan. She's a, a researcher, and she's been working on phthalates and bisphenols. These are the plasticizing chemicals for the last, you know, twenty years of her career, and she's you know top researcher in the field, not getting anywhere. And she just realized oh, I've got to do something. Now she's on Joe Rogan. She's on Comedy Central. She's letting them use her as like a way to get these bigger stories out there. But she's yeah. probably losing credibility of some of her peers because she's speaking out in these unconventional venues, but now she's reaching an audience that yeah. they'll never be able to reach. I think academia gets way too insular and there's too many great minds just not communicating with people in times where information is desperately needed. Yeah, but here's the thing, like even like the secondhand smoke thing, that was data-driven, right? You won't remember the name of the researchers who did those studies but you remember the effects. And it was mostly activists and organizations working with that information to interpret it for politicians. You need both. The politicians, you can't you just- You totally need both. The politicians need to go to the voters and say, here's what the science shows. I think I can tell one story because it's really out there in the news is Mayor Eric Adams. He was an incredible character. People on our crew, we interviewed him several months back. And- some of our crew said, well, you know, New Yorkers, they either love or hate the mayor. And some of them hated the mayor until they, saw, they heard his interview. And they were like, I love that guy. <laughs> He's a charmer. He is. No, I mean, yeah. the story, you know. This, this, yeah, his story is unbelievable. Oh, yeah. I mean, his whole family was diabetic. He was diabetic. Yeah. He got animal. He was going blind, literally going blind. And then once he was able to heal himself, he's like, a lot of people out there in New York, just like me, we have the biggest hospital system in the country. We have one of the biggest school systems in the country. And now he has Meatless Mondays and Plant Forward Fridays. He has, I think it's nine or 11 area hospitals. They all default to vegan meals. So you're not feeding people the meal that got them into the hospital in the first place. <laughs> I mean, it's such a, you know, this, I, and it's like, wow, that's yeah. huge. Because then, you know, that little maxim, you know, if you could do it in New York, there's no place as divided as New York for people. But when you get hospitals that are serving vegetarian meals or vegan meals at a hospital. It's unbelievable. It really is. He's just one of those game changers. Yeah, really extraordinary. I could talk to you all day because obviously you can talk. You are not just behind a camera. You also can put some words together. So this has just been a joy, Louie. I'm so glad that you were able to join us. Thank you so much. And I'm going to ask you a few more questions on our bonus segment. All right. Well, great talking to you and I uh, hope your audience is entertained. <laughs> I'm sure they are. If you like what you're listening to, and I hope you do, then please consider taking a minute out of your day today to leave us a friendly review. You can do it on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify or Stitcher or on Facebook or wherever you listen to podcasts or wherever you're listening to this. The more we get out there, the more our hen house will be in front of people's eyeballs when they're putting in search terms in their podcasts and the more we could join forces together to elevate the voices of the animals and change the world for them. So thank you so much in advance for leaving us a friendly review. Anxiety's rising. Obviously, this is the week where the industry's anxieties are 
seriously out of control. And that's because of the Supreme Court's decision in in the Prop 12 case, upholding Prop 12. And of course, I'll be talking a lot about that on my next Animal Law podcast if you want to do a, a deep dive into it. But I thought I would just take a moment to just report on some of the very early responses of the industry and its passionate supporters uh, in Congress, of course, about how pissed off they are that they didn't win everything. Like, they, they're used to winning everything. They're just not used to, like, anybody favoring animals over them. And, you know, the case is complicated. There are many issues involved in the case, but let's face it, they lost. They lost big time and they're upset. So I just thought you'd, you'd enjoy a few quotes, all of which completely misrepresent what happened in this case. This is from Chuck Grassley, who, of course, is the senator from Iowa. Iowa is the nation's top work producer. California comes nowhere close, yet its proposed regulations put restrictions on how pork producers in all other states raise hogs. Today, SCOTUS upholds California's radical regs. It's hogwash. And he also added, the decision is an attack on your breakfast. You know, as I pointed out, it's all misrepresentations because California doesn't actually... What happened here is that California, as you probably know, set regulations about what type of pork can be sold in California. And if Iowa farmers, quote unquote farmers, don't want to do what... California requires regarding the raising of pigs whose whose dead bodies are going to be sold in California. They don't have to do business in California. But, you know, they, they just consistently ignore this inconvenient fact. All right. This is from Joni Ernst, who is the other senator from Iowa. Extremists in liberal states like California shouldn't be allowed to ban our bacon and punish hardworking Iowa pork producers with overreaching policies. Well, using kind of extreme language, uh, that one isn't actually a misrepresentation of what happened here. Disappointed in SCOTUS decision on Prop 12. I'll keep fighting for Iowa farmers. Feenstra, who's a, a congressional representative from Iowa, tweeted that he was disappointed and said, California liberals, they loved, <laughs> that's their favorite word here. Like this, this it, this is the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court that the Republicans own like, like made this decision. It wasn't made in California. California liberals have no jurisdiction over how Iowa farmers raise our hogs, he wrote. On top of Biden's radical WOTUS rule, that's the waters of the United States, it's another issue, and tax hikes on our producers, this decision is just another attack on rural America. Could you please remember that this is the Supreme Court that did this, not California? Well, California did it, and then the Supreme Court said, yeah, California's right. Or the National Pork Producers Council, you know, said we're in shock. No, they didn't say we're, they're in shock, though they are in shock. Said in a statement that allowing state overreach will increase prices for consumers and drive small farms out of business, leading to more consolidation. Oh, yeah. The National Pork Producers Council really, really is against consolidation and all for tiny little small farmers. Yeah, right. OK. And the American Farm Bureau Federation its president, whose name is, I swear to God, this is this is this person's name, Zippy Duval, said the, the AFBF, the American Farm Bureau Federation, is disappointed in the closely divided Supreme Court ruling, you know, leaving out the fact that that it's divided like because there are all these Republicans who are voting against the, the National Pork Producers Council position. The, the, the court really split in very bizarre ways. At the heart of this argument is whether one state can set the rules for the entire country. You know, as I said before, that's just not what was going on here. The arbitrary standards 
take away flexibility to ensure hogs are raised in a safe environment. You know, this was all about gestation crates. Uh, so they're so safe. Uh, Prop 12 will cause further consolidation in agriculture nationwide. Yeah, they really hate that consolidation in these organizations. And lead to higher pork prices at the grocery store for America's families. This law will ultimately harm consumers, farmers, and animals. Oh, yeah, this is really bad for animals. All right, they're all crazy. But you already knew that. All right, I'm not going to spend the entire time on that case because it's being talked about enough and we'll be talking about it more. But here's another issue that, you know, got overshadowed perhaps a little bit by by the Supreme Court case. And that's this uh, piece on 60 Minutes, which which was about the situation that has been bubbling up for a while, but they did a kind of a deep dive into it. And that's the, the practice in in slaughterhouses of hiring young children, 13 and 14 year olds, for night shifts to clean up slaughterhouses. So this is uh, the Meet Your Markets column by Matt Graves, and he's pretty upset about this. Children on the night shift, shame on us. Yeah, Mac, shame on you. Well, shame on you for a lot of reasons, but this is one of them. But, you know, I'm glad you're recognizing it. The whole situation is one of, uh, let's blame it on somebody else, but apparently... The company that they were looking into was called Packers Sanitation Service, which is a subsidiary of Blackstone, who advertised themselves as the world's largest alternative asset manager. And then the the plant or the slaughterhouse, they like to call slaughterhouses plants, which I just think is so hilarious, which hired this Packers Sanitation Service as a contractor is owned by JBS, which is, of course, the largest meat company in the world. And it was in Nebraska, Grand Island, Nebraska. That's where they did this undercover work. And, you know, they found all of these children. And I saw pictures. You probably did, too. They they looked like children. They were tiny. And they were wearing these, like, you know, horrible hazmat-looking suits. The, the U.S. Department of Labor estimated that they have found 100 children employed at the at the implicated slaughterhouses that they looked into. But they thought that the number was probably much higher. That's how many they found. 100. Statements um, from both PSSI and Blackstone said they had the highest, like, they just feel they can say anything, said they had the highest standards of checking the qualifications of those they put to work in the plants. What? All right, maybe everybody else has even worse standards. Like you can't tell that uh, this tiny little person is a child. Uh, but you know, those are the highest standards. And they, they, however, they also, they also, or PSSI signed a consent degree pledging not to employ children in the future. So their position seems to be, well, there's no way for us to know their children, and we won't do it anymore. So apparently, they're going to figure out how to know that they're children. And PSSI replaced its CEO. I'm glad he was he or she was replaced. I'm sure they are a terrible person, but but like that's it. That's it. As Mr. Graves points out, did JBS know of these small workers entering the plant during a nightly shift change, as documented by the Department of Labor? Well, aren't they responsible for knowing? Like, do you actually have to go in and prove that that they had the information? It's their slaughterhouse. It would seem, based on their small stature alone, to certainly raise questions about their age. Well, I think it's up to them to make sure that they're not hiring children or that the companies that they are doing business with and which they want to throw off all responsibility on are, are not hiring children. Matt Graves points out that the majority of the children were, of course, immigrants or 
from families that had recently immigrated to the United States. And, you know, as we've seen, a lot of them are um, are in under these programs where children can get in here alone. Uh, they're just the most vulnerable people you can imagine. So his solution here is he thinks it's a problem. There, there are all these undocumented immigrants and they should be allowed in. And the meat industry has to work with Congress or the president to allow in more of these immigrants legally so that they can have more labor. Well, isn't that convenient? I mean, I agree that we should not have undocumented immigrants and people need to be documented. And and I'm not against letting in more immigrants. But the real point here is that you don't have to let in immigrants in order to get people to do this work. What he's suggesting is we should we should let in more very, very vulnerable people, desperate people who will take any job that they can find for as little money as we are willing to pay them. But they need to be adults. That's all he's saying. What they need to do is they need to pay people really a lot of money to do this horrible job. Once you pay people really a lot of money, you can find people who will do anything for you, even this horrible work. So just do it. Suck it up, pay it, and then raise the price of your horrible product. Let people pay what it's really uh, what it really costs. Of course, we'd have to do more than pay slaughterhouse workers more in order to do that. But that's my suggestion, Mac. <laughs> I think you'll listen to me. All right. My third article is also from meetingplace.com. This is from Free Range Thoughts from Jack Hubbard. New think tank takes on sustainability animal extremists. All right. So he's really upset about ESG activism, environment, social and governance. The piece he really, really hates is the fact that that um, animal rights advocates have gotten into really the boardrooms of uh, the intermediaries in the food business, the supermarkets, the fast food outlets, and uh, have talked them into, you know, having some standards about how animals are treated. And as we all know, they're having a lot of trouble meeting those incredibly minimal standards. So they have launched a new think tank, the Center for Environment and Welfare. Always. <laughs> That's a clever name, isn't it? Uh, yeah, just just straight out lie. Don't try to be fancy about it. All right, so the center has two goals. First, to educate the public and corporate leaders about who the animal extremists are. And second, to properly frame sustainability and environmental issues and provide information the extreme activists won't. So his premise here is that animal activists from animal rights organizations go into these boardrooms and... And these people who run, you know, McDonald's or, or Safeway or whatever are just so gullible and stupid. They just believe everything that crazy animal activists tell them. And he says, if you want to understand how animal activists convince food companies to make bad pledges, it's often quite simple. They ask nicely. Who knew that all you had to do to change the entire way the food system works is just to ask nicely? I thought they actually had to have the truth on their side. Unbelievable. Animal activists will get a meeting with a company's decision makers and give a one-sided presentation. They will show up clean cut in a suit. <laughs> All right. Oh, God. To make their pitch. And they are well-practiced to sound reasonable and provide cherry-picked information. Dozens of other companies have already made this pledge. Why don't you? Yeah, these food companies are just so remarkably stupid. <laughs> <laughs> that all you have to do is wear a suit. Oh, he's talking specifically about the Accountability Board, which is this new organization by, uh, put together by Matt Prescott and Josh Bach. 
he th- just thinks everybody will just fall for them and, unless they have this, this Center for Environment and Welfare telling, telling these companies the truth because, you know, the meat industry is so much more reliable source of information. And one of the things he says is that animal rights activists are pouring resources into badgering companies. Oh, now they're badgering before they were wearing suits to make the better chicken commitment. And his whole problem here is they don't mention that that this will have enormous environmental costs. And this is why this is a tough one. Like, like the world is so horrible that in order to grow chickens who are not so incredibly damaged by their own genetics and and frail and so that they can grow in incredibly bizarrely fast way you have to breed chickens that will live longer but grow slower and they won't be quite so ill and you know that uses more resources so that's destroying the environment you know what we've you've proved here you've proved that your entire industry is completely unsustainable and there isn't a way to fix it that's what you've proved you know what really makes them crazy? Animal activists may have never stepped foot on a farm. Why should any company listen to them over people who know what they are talking about? Oh, that one really makes me crazy. Like you have to be a farmer to know that it's wrong to do these things. I would say that anybody who sets foot on one of these quote unquote farms these days uh, should never be believed about anything. Oh, the fight is on. And there, you know, there's a little, there is just a little whiff of desperation. I love to hear it. And that's it for this week's Rising Anxieties. Well, that's it for our show. As always, if you enjoy the podcast and you're able, we would be thrilled to have you join the flock by going to ourhenhouse.org slash donate and signing up for $10 a month or $100 a year. Or you are welcome to make any size donation that feels comfortable to you. You can also support us by leaving a glowing review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Like us on Facebook, where you can also leave a fabulous review, and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Our Hen House. Join our online community at ourhenhouse.mn.co and spread the word about the podcast to friends and family. The Mighty Networks platform, which again is at ourhenhouse.mn.co, is available to everyone, regardless of whether or not you're a Flock member, though we do have a lot of robust information behind the paywall of the Flock section, so do consider that when you're considering joining the Flock. And if you already support us, thank you so much. Remember, if you become a Flock member, you also get bonus content each week, an opportunity to have a one-on-one session with me, Jasmine, And you also get access to that aforementioned fabulous flock bonus area of Mighty Networks. If you donate $250 or more, we'll also send you a pretty fantastic Our Hen House brass pin. So thank you so much to those of you who support us. Thank you to my co-host, Marianne Sullivan, to Vicki Beachler for her work in producing this podcast, to composer Michael Heron for the music. Thanks to Eric Montgomery of the Podcast Haven for his work editing the podcast to our production assistant, Jocelyn Martinez, and to Veronica Kalinska, who designed our logo and other graphics. I'm Jasmine Singer, and I'll talk to you next week. 